You may be seated. Let me invite you to turn with me and your copy of God's Word to our New Testament reading and sermon text this morning. You can find it on page 815 of your pew Bibles, page 815. Uh, We were reading Matthew chapter 10, uh, verse 26 through the end of the chapter. This is our third week in Matthew chapter 10. Uh, It's significant because this is a teaching section in the ministry of Jesus that speaks particularly to his own apostles in the current moment and disciples in the future, missionaries, messengers, with instructions on taking his gospel, his word, to the very ends of the earth. Jesus is hitting on the same theme uh, throughout this chapter, sort of cycling and recycling back and forth. And so you will hear things this morning that touch on themes we've already heard. You'll you'll hear things in the sermon that touch on themes uh, that we have already heard. Particularly, we have learned that to follow Jesus as bearers of his message and of his name will inevitably put us face to face with hostility in this world. That hostility can take different shapes, different flavors, different ways that it comes to us. But some way or another, God's people will face some level of hostility in the world around us. Not directed at us, directed at our Savior. And so reflected upon us. The image from last week that Jesus gave is that he sends his followers out as sheep in the midst of wolves. We find out this morning is what we assumed last week. That's a pretty scary frightful prospect to go out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And so as he closes this teaching section, this sending section, Jesus addresses the fears of his apostles, of his disciples, uh, and to all of his children. So pick up with me at verse 26 as we read Matthew chapter 10 uh, unto the end of the chapter. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered, Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. 
And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me in prayer? Our Lord, as we come to this text and as we read once again the harrowing calling of following Christ, we pray that you would prepare us and you would strengthen us and you would embolden us for the task, but more than putting our eyes on ourselves and our own strength, would you in these next couple minutes direct our attention to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? Would we see him? Would we see his finished work? Would we see his boldness and courage in the face of threats and of death and of in him? In him would we truly be a people learning not to fear the things of this world. We pray, O oh Lord, you speak to us in these few minutes, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great novels about the American Civil War was by an author named Stephen Crane. The novel is called The Red Badge of Courage. Maybe one of those books you read in high school English and promptly forgot all about. <laughs> Uh, it's a, it's a, uh, a powerful book about a young man, a teenage boy, who's called to go fight in the battlefield of the Civil War. And unlike most novels about warfare, where all of the action happens outside of the characters, the action in the Red Badge of Courage all happens inside the main character. As he goes to the battlefield, this teenage boy, he is wondering, what will he do? when the bullets start flying. You can picture what a Civil War battle would have looked like. People just lining up across from each other and standing there as they shoot at each other. And the immense amount of fortitude it takes to receive bullets flying at you and not turn and run. And so the main character from the jump in the book is wondering, will he be brave and stand firm or will he flee? I wonder if some of you have ever wondered that. I mean, in, you know, when you're playing soldier, at least when I played soldier in the backyard, I was never running away and fleeing. I was pretty brave, right? This is a different, this is a different reality, isn't it? What will we do? What would we do in the face of hostility and, and threats? Jesus is sending people out into a spiritual battle. And he is preparing them for the hostility that they are going to face. And the humble among them and the humble among us should be asking the question, what would I do in the face of such hostility? What would I do in the face of such threats and even death itself? You will note the title of the sermon, Courageous Faith. I believe that is what Jesus is aiming to instill in the hearts of his followers. Faith that proves itself courageous in the face of danger, in the face of hostility. And we're going to see in these verses that God gives us courageous faith to do what exactly? Well, here's our main idea. God gives us courageous faith to face the opposition to his gospel. Courageous faith to face the opposition to his gospel. That we as sheep sent out amidst the wolves would be marked as men and women, even children, of courageous faith. How does Jesus give us such courageous faith? 
Well, I want you to see two parts in our verses. First, he gives us promises to believe. He gives us promises to hold on to. He gives us anchors in the storm. He gives us truths that never change throughout the circumstances of life that we hold on to. And then in the second part of our verses, he gives us the fruit that we bear out of such courageous faith that believes the promises of God. Or if you're taking notes, here are two points. I'll give them to you ahead of time. Number one, courageous faith believes the promises of a faithful God. That's point one. And point two, courageous faith bears the fruit of a faithful life. So promises to believe, fruit to bear in this life. So let's look at each. First in verses 26 to 31, God gives us promises that we are to believe. Now it doesn't begin with a promise. It begins with a command. Go back to the very first verse of our section. He says to his apostles, sheep about to go out in the midst of wolves, don't be afraid of them. Have no fear of them. If only that worked, right? If only you could just tell us not to be afraid and we could just skip the rest of it, right? I mean, I kind of wish that worked as a parent sometimes when my kids are scared of the dark. We're scared of the dark. Sorry, not anymore. I wish I could have just gone into the room and said, just don't be afraid. And then I'm done. Then my parenting job's done, right? That would be easy, wouldn't it? Uh, You parents know that usually doesn't work. I need to tell them some things that are true, right? No, there's no monsters under the bed. (laughs) Yes, the windows and doors are locked. Yes, dad and mom are right down the hall. Yes, God is watching over us and will keep us safe. Don't be afraid. Here are the reasons not to be afraid. Here's the truth that you believe to face the fears. So sheep rightly should be afraid of wolves, and yet Jesus gives promises that if we believe those promises, then fear will begin to go away in our heart and our lives. So let me give you the three promises that Jesus gives in these verses. Three promises or three truths to believe. Number one, God will reveal the truth. Here's our first promise to believe. God will reveal the truth. Verses 26 and 27. You see how Jesus phrases it. So have no fear of them, comma, for. Therefore, here's our first reason not to be afraid of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, which you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Sum that up. What is Jesus saying? He's saying God will reveal the truth. Now, the verses just say the truth will be revealed. I've turned it around so that we all know and acknowledge who's the one revealing the truth. It's God. Now, for vulnerable apostles, that's a, that's a great comfort, isn't it? The people who hate me and are persecuting me and are refusing and rejecting me, they're enemies of God and they can't hide. Right? In the long run, truth will be revealed. See, in the moment, the earthly kingdom looks a whole lot more powerful and strong than God's kingdom. God's kingdom is six pairs of apostles scattered about with doors closed in their face, with entire towns turning them away. It looks like the kingdom of man is the one that is big and strong and powerful, right? And the kingdom of God is just sort of desperately walking around the outskirts of society. But God, to the comfort of the apostles and to our own comfort, tells us that his truth will be revealed. That the kingdom of God one day will not come merely in humility, it will come in power and glory. See, for the apostles that would have been comforting that their enemies 
can't hide from the truth, right? But it's also somewhat convicting, isn't it? Because if they can't hide, you know who else can't hide? I can't hide. And you can't hide. And none of us can hide. You, you see, Jesus sort of turns to an application to them in verse 27 and says, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. I know that you are in the minority as you go out as apostles into this world. You know the truth. I know the truth, says God. Therefore, do not speak the lies. Do not hide the truth. Speak and proclaim the truth. If all truth will ultimately be revealed, then go ahead and say it now. Right? Even if you are despised for it, if you are hated for it, if you are mocked for it, if you are considered a liar for speaking the truth, God's truth will ultimately be revealed. And that is a promise, quite frankly, in a world of lies that we can hold on to. It gives us courageous faith to know that God will reveal the truth. The second promise strengthens our faith even more. Because verse 28 tells us that God will judge the world. There's our second promise. God will judge the world. Look at verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. You can imagine these six pairs of apostles, right? There's 12 of them. They go two by two out. And as they're going out, one of them looks to the other one and says, you know, what's the worst that could happen as we go out here? And his partner looks over and says, well, they could kill us. Right. They, could take, they could physically take our lives and put us to death. That sounds like a terrifying mission to go out on, right? It's not just that they'll, they'll turn away and maybe you know, you'll be a little discouraged when 5 o'clock comes and it's time to go home. No, they could literally take your lives. But Jesus is telling them the worst that you think that can happen is that you would physically die is not even close to the worst that can happen under the judgment of God. One commentator describes the, the doctrine that comes out of this verse as the non-finality of death. That's sort of a funny way to say it, isn't it? But it's true that death feels so final, does it not? I mean, it feels like the most final thing in my life is what? How it ends, is death. And here Jesus is telling his followers, he's telling us of the, the non-finality of death. That death isn't final. And his application is, so do not fear those who could even take your own body because there is one greater who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The truth for them is the same as the truth for us today. The judgment is real. The eternal life is real. And the God who reveals all truth and who sees everything unto the very depths of our heart, that God will judge every person according to his righteous standard of perfection. And under the all-searching, all-knowing eye of God, there is nowhere to run and hide. Because it may feel like people aren't judged in this world, but the promise we hold on to is that we all will be judged in the next. And the gospel promise for us is not, so go make sure and do some good things this week so God will see your good works and won't judge you as bad, right? The righteous standard of God's word is perfection. 
And so when the judge of the universe sees every one of us, he sees us in our sin. It separates us and rejects God himself. In our sin, we reject God himself. The gospel tells us not to work a little harder and do a little better. The gospel tells us that Jesus, the only one to live perfectly and fulfill the standard of righteousness of God, stands between us and this judge. And the only way to escape this judgment is to be hidden in Christ, is to be by faith in Jesus so that God, when he looks at us, does not see us in our polluted flesh and sin. He sees us through the perfection of Jesus. And so we are counted as righteous in his sight. For the apostles, for the disciples, for all who bear the name of Jesus, this is a serious and sobering truth, but it is also a promise of great strength as we face persecution and hostility in this life. We look in the book of Acts and we see Stephen, remember it's the story of Stephen who was stoned to death. And at the end of his life, as he is about to take his final breath, he looks into heaven and he sees Jesus standing as he is martyred for the faith. He knows the reality of life after death and it gives him strength and courage to endure in this world. And it, honestly, it doesn't matter if we are going to face persecution this week or not. All of us need to be emboldened to look death in the face and say, you have no strength over me. You have no power over me. You may kill the body, but you cannot harm the soul. If we believe this gospel, we can look death in the eyes and say, you have no victory. You have no sting. I will never be afraid of you. God will judge the world, a promise for every one of us to believe. And then our third and final promise that gives us strength and courageous faith is found in verses 29 to 31. The promise is God will care for his own. God will care for his own. Jesus switches from this heavy topic of hell at the end of verse 28 uh, to birds in verse 29. I know many of you know these verses. It's sort of jarring as we switch from a second reason to a third as he transitions to speak of uh, these two sparrows. And he asks them a rhetorical question. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Uh, So if they're buying a sparrow, uh, they can get a two-for-one deal, right? Two sparrows for just one penny. So sparrows, uh, these little birds, aren't worth very much. And yet, Jesus tells us that though these sparrows, these kind of almost worthless birds. They have some value. It is minimal financial value. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. These very cheap birds (laughs) who aren't around for very long don't die apart from the will of their Father in heaven. Now this is incredible to think about, that God oversees even the life and death of birds. A quick Google search told me this week that there are, give or take, 50 billion birds in the world. I have no idea how they came up with that number, Uh, but that's what Google says. It must be true, right? (laughs) 
give or take a couple billion. There's 50 billion birds in the world. I assume a lot of them die every day. But not a single one of those birds dies apart from our Father in heaven. We call this the providence of God. Here's a fancy definition of providence. It is God's most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. God controls everything. And there's not a single bird, a single speck outside of the providential care of God. So what does this mean for us? If a sparrow that is worth half a penny doesn't die outside of the perfect will of God, Jesus is asking his followers, so how much then are you worth? And he switches to a different image. And he says that God has numbered the hairs on your head. I confess I spent a lot of time on Google this week when I was preparing this sermon. There's a lot of hairs on your head. About 100,000. Some of you more than others. Uh, About 100,000 hair or hair follicles, we might say, on your head. There's about, I don't know, 150 of you in here. That's 15 million pieces of hair in this room. It's a lot of hair, right? Sorry to gross you out. Oh, that's a lot of hair. God has numbered every one of them. That's kind of unreal, right? God has numbered every single hair in this little room. The God who owns 50 billion birds and 15 million hairs just in this room is the providential God who preserves and governs all his creatures. And all their actions. What does this mean for you? It's this simple truth. You're worth more than a sparrow. We're not talking about uh, the, sort of the, the ranking of creatures in the world that humans are worth more than birds. No, you are worth more in the eyes of God than a sparrow. That sounds a little silly, doesn't it? Like, of course, pastor, I know I'm worth more than a sparrow. And yet I know there are some of you who have been made to think that you're not worth very much. You have been mistreated. You have been uncared for. You have been left. You have been abandoned. You have been made to believe that you carry very little worth in this life. But to your Father in heaven, he knows every 100,000, more or less, hairs on your head. And that God will take care of you. God will take care of you. Not that you won't ever suffer. That's not what Jesus is saying. Not that you might not even die. I mean, the, the, the example is about sparrows that die, right? You might die. And you might suffer for Christ. But none of it will happen outside of the perfect plan of God. You will not lose one of your hairs outside of the perfect plan of God. Your death will not be one second sooner or later. But it is kept in the perfect plan of God. He holds you in the hollow of his hand. God will care for his own. And that promise, believing that promise, will breed in us courageous faith to face the worst threats the world can throw at us. What would your life look like? What would it really look like this week if you believed fully with all of your heart all three of these promises? 
that God will reveal the truth, that God will judge the world, that God will care for his own. You know, Jesus isn't an empty preacher. He went out and he lived this. In his courageous faith, he faced the threats of the evil one. And he believed the promises of God to the very end. Remember, Jesus was mocked for the truth. Oh, king of the Jews, come on. What did Jesus do? He believed that God would reveal the truth. And he was marked with courageous faith. Jesus was threatened with earthly death itself in, in, in every way possible. And he stood firm believing and trusting that God will judge the world. And Jesus, his final cry of forsakenness, felt upon the cross as if he had been abandoned, and yet he knew that his father, who numbered the hairs on his head, would care for him and would never leave him or forsake him. Believing the promises of a faithful God bears in us courageous faith. What does that courageous faith look like? Well, if you turn with me to the second part of our passage, I want to show you the fruit. The fruit that is born by believing these promises. Our second heading is courageous faith bears the fruit of a faithful life. Verses 42, sorry, 32 to 42. And just so you can keep some balance in your notes, I'm going to give you three points uh, under this second heading as well. Three fruit. We got three promises we hold on to. Three fruit that we pray that God bears in us in the faithful life. The first fruit of faith is that faith acknowledges Jesus. Verses 32 and 33. Faith acknowledges Jesus. That sounds like a pretty low bar, doesn't it? That's it? that's, That's your profound fruit, Jesus? I just have to acknowledge you? What's the contrast in these verses to acknowledging Jesus? Well, the contrast is denying him. Now, it sounds pretty easy, right? We're in a room with lots of Christians in it. We don't face any harsh persecution. When we leave this afternoon, we like to think, you know, this is kind of obvious. Who, who, who would ever not acknowledge Jesus? Well, I can give you a couple names in the Bible. Apostle Peter comes to the top of the list, doesn't he? He was one of the 12. He heard this very charge. And yet in his moment of trial and testing, he denied Jesus not once, but twice, but three times. It doesn't even seem like Peter was denying Jesus in order to save his life, does it? It seems like he was denying Jesus to save his reputation. He was afraid, it seems like, of what a lowly servant girl was going to think of him. If mighty Peter struggled to acknowledge Jesus, how much more do we need the courageous faith to bear fruit in us as well. And I don't want to spoil the red badge of courage if any of you want to go back and read it, but um, I'm going to spoil it anyway. So plug your ears if you don't want to hear what happens. Uh, the guy runs away when the bullets start flying. He takes off and he runs the other direction. Uh, he wonders if he's going to be strong, and instead he flees at the first gunfire. He goes for days and weeks and he's plagued with shame and guilt and recrimination, right? That in this moment, he he betrayed his flag and his brothers and his nation. 
You know, this was actually a problem in the early church when some of our forefathers and foremothers faced deep and bloody persecution. There were, there were many that stood firm and acknowledged Jesus, and they were martyred for it. They were put to death. There were others who trusted him, but in their moment of trial, they denied him to save their life, to save their family, to save their home or whatever. And the, the early church faced this problem. What do we do with people who have denied Jesus and come back and ask for forgiveness? What do we do with them? Are they, are they lost forever because they failed at that one moment of trial? What, the early church patterned their behavior, of course, on the pattern of Jesus. What did he do with the apostle Peter? He did not cast him out forever. He restored him. And he welcomed him back. His, I believe what Jesus is saying here is, is not that we have this one test in our life, and if we fail that one test, we're, we're done forever. No, he's, he is building within us men and women of courageous faith. How many of you would go back and have a conversation differently than you had a few years ago? And maybe you had a moment to say something and you remained silent. Or maybe somebody else assumed that you didn't really believe what those crazy Bible-believing Christians actually believe and you didn't do anything to dissuade them. Are there times where you didn't bear the fruit of acknowledging Jesus as you wish you had? Praise God, we serve a merciful and gracious Savior who restores us and strengthens us. And he, he, he gives us courage to go and in that next moment to face the foe again and to, to trusting him to be rooted in Christ. To acknowledge Jesus, either to, to the detriment of our own life or to the detriment of our, even our reputation. Courageous faith acknowledges Jesus. The second fruit that he names for us in verses 34 and 39 is that courageous faith loves Jesus. Courageous faith loves Jesus. And these verses don't begin uh, with sort of a lovely image, right? They, it, they begin with the sword. Verse 34, do not think I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. In this image, the sword is the tool of dividing. It is the weapon of division, of separation. And so Jesus says that he has come to, to, to separate that which is intimately close and connected. And faith that loves Jesus Loves Jesus more than our own families. In other parts of the New Testament, the Gospels, we read that we, to love him, we have to hate our family. Here we understand what that means. It's hate in comparison to the love we have for Jesus. So we love Jesus more. Now this verse 35, you could look it up this afternoon, is actually a quote from Micah chapter 7, verse 6, where we learn that uh, it's not new that faith and, in God divides families. It's been happening for a long time and it will continue to happen. The question here is not, do you not love your family? It's that faith loves Jesus more. Or put it another way, faith, it reorders our loves. <laughs> it takes the natural order of love in our heart and it turns it upside down. It reorders it, it restacks it. With Jesus at the top. Uh, my illustration about love, of course, has to do with basketball, so bear with me for a second. Uh, my father grew up in uh, the great state of Kentucky, and he grew up a huge 
Kentucky basketball fan, as any boy in the state of Kentucky grows up. And he loved the Wildcats, and he went to the game, and he cheered for me. He went to college there. He went to grad school there. He was a lifelong Kentucky Wildcat, loving basketball, until he got his dream job at Duke University right down the road. Uh, If you know anything, you know that Duke and Kentucky don't really get along with each other. It took some time, but my dad saw the light, and he is now a true Duke fan. His Kentucky fandom has moved down the charts. How much more important is it with our family and with our God? Basketball, sports have nothing to do with that. God reorders our loves. He does this this really miraculous work in our hearts, right, In, in rearranging our love. And so he can say that Whoever loves father or mother more than me or son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's not not necessarily trying to convict Christians that they love their parents or their kids too much, although that might be true. (laughs) He's telling us how God does this, this miraculous work in our own hearts of prioritizing a love for him more than anything else in this world. And the worthiness is, we saw this a couple weeks ago, the house that disciples stay in is worthy, not because they do something to make it worthy. Their hospitality shows that they have believed in the message. And by faith in Christ, they are made worthy. By believing in Jesus, our loves are reordered such that we are shown to be people of courageous faith. Not only do we love God more than our family, we also, in verses 38 and 39, love him more than our own life itself. Look at these sort of famous verses, 38 and 39. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. They they did not know at the time what exactly this would entail. They knew Jesus had some predictions about his death. They might have known about the idea of crucifixion. But Jesus carrying his own cross? Are, Are you kidding me? The, the king, the Messiah. So they would go back and read this later with a different understanding. This is a, an image for them and for us of death to self. Carrying our own cross is a symbol of dying to ourselves. That is pressed home in verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To lose life can either mean literally physically dying and then gaining the life of eternity with Jesus. Or it could mean sort of a metaphorical death to self. That if we die to ourselves, our own desires, our own loves, our own priorities, we are given life in Christ. Courageous faith loves Jesus more than our own families, more than our own lives. Let me say the obvious here before we move on. Jesus is worthy of this love. This would be pretty arrogant coming from anybody else, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be pretty arrogant. You need to love me more than your own kids. You need to love me more than your own parents. You need to love me more than you love your own life. But on the lips of Jesus, it is all worth it. It is all true. He is better than these things. <laughs> His love is better than life itself. Courageous faith acknowledges Jesus. Courageous faith loves Jesus. And then our final couple of verses, we see, thirdly, that courageous faith receives Jesus. 
Verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him uh, who sent me. Jesus is actually turning his attention here from the apostles back to the beginning of chapter 10 when he speaks of those who receive the apostles. He does the same thing, if you remember, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. At the very end, he has all this wonderful teaching, and then he turns it, and he says, okay, I'm done. What about you? This is what he's doing at the end of chapter 10. I'm done. Now, what about you? Not what about not what are the apostles going to do? Not how they are going to be courageous. Do you receive me? And th- this image here uh, is to encourage the disciples that there are people who will receive them in all the towns. They will house them on their traveling missionary journey. Uh, and he uses this category: whoever receives you. And then he says the next verse, whoever receives a prophet, the next verse, whoever receives a righteous man, these are all describing the same apostles. And then we see in the last verse, whoever receives one of these little ones, the little one, that's been confused many times, that's also referring to the apostles or to the disciples. So Jesus is simply encouraging them that they will be received. And those who receive the messengers also show that they are receiving the message. They are receiving Christ himself and the promises of the gospel. So the last question turns to us. You have heard of Jesus. You have heard of his gospel. You have heard of his work. You have heard of his cross. You have heard of the salvation that he offers. Are you rejecting him? Or do you receive him in faith? You see this different fruit that comes out of Trusting in the promises of God, acknowledging, loving, and receiving Jesus. You know, most of us love to hear stories of courageous faith, right? We'd rather our war heroes run into the battle, not away from the battle, right? We love to read those stories in Christian history of men and women of such courageous faith, right? We love to hear, as you all did recently, of of Esther, who said, I will, I will go to the king, and if I perish, then I perish. We love the story of the, the guy Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of, of Daniel, who are about to be thrown uh, into the fiery furnace. And they say, if God doesn't deliver us, we still won't serve your God. We love to read of the Apostle Paul standing firm as he says and writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. We read of our early church martyrs and we read of one in particular who said you can kill us but you cannot harm us we love the fruit of martin luther's profession when he says here i stand i cannot do otherwise brothers and sisters if we want this type of courageous fruit it begins with courageous faith in the promises of god may we as a people join the saints of old Believe the promises of our faithful God that we too might bear the fruit of a faithful life. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, you know our cowardice and weakness at times. You know our frail and feeble faith that can acknowledge these promises, but uh, when a bit of hostility, when a bit of friction comes up, we are quick to run or to remain silent or to forget you. Our Father, show us the clarity of your promises in your word and grant us the faith to hold deeply to them, to cling to them. We pray that we as a people and we as a church 
would bear the fruits of a courageous life. We ask that you would do that in and through us, that you might receive all of the glory, we pray.